The gospel reading is from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Well, that is an ambitious selection of Scripture to cover in one sermon. You're probably wondering how I'm going to do that, and uh, I am too. Uh, but actually, I, um, my sermon was a lot longer than what I'm sharing with you this morning, um, but Thanks to my wife, Katie, you can thank her afterwards, 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 how do you say that? Afterwards, uh, that she asked me how my sermon was going last night, and I said, well, I think I've got two sermons, I don't know how to cut it down, and she was like, well, just cut it in half and do the next half next week, so, uh, so yeah, thanks to her. Um, I was asked last week how many more sermons we have in this uh, Punk God series, and should have asked at that point, is that because you want it to go longer, or are you ready for it to be over? And I didn't, but I just sheepishly said, I don't know. Um, But I do know that we've rounded the corner, and uh, we're coming towards the end. We're a little bit past halfway, and I want to take a few moments this morning just to kind of reorient ourselves to why we're doing this, why a series on uh, the punkness of God, a punk God. For those of you that are new, we've had a number of people that have joined us since we started this series about six weeks ago and kind of laid out the overview and the whys and the what's of this series. And it's more than just because I want to be the church that quotes the Sex Pistols in the front of the bulletin, although I do like that. 
I hope that's hope that you do as well. But it's more than that. Punk is a genre of music, at least that's how we're talking about it, although it's more than that. Punk is a it's a posture. It's a, a hermeneutic of suspicion towards mainstream culture, towards the dominant culture. And at best, punk sees something about our world that mainstream culture either can't or won't. And it tries to unmask a culture that is rotted by political and personal and corporate greed, tries to unmask the way that we pursue buying things as a way of meaning-making. It talks about and seeks to unmask the militaristic and colonialistic adventurism of the modern West, the Western powers. And it talks a lot about and seeks to undermine the sort of abusive and paternalistic hierarchies in both the state as well as in the church. It's a, it's a posture of againstness. It's against Western, white, waspy moral values and their hegemony in our culture. And it's saying there is another way that just because that's what's in ascendancy now does not necessarily mean that it is right. And especially as that sort of stilted morality is guarded and protected by the state and by the church. And punk helps us say that there's another way to live. And it sees itself as fundamentally a liberation project from, I would say, the powers and the principalities, to use biblical terminology. And here's what's important, I think, for our text this morning is it is launching an attack on the principles, principalities, and the powers from where? From the cultural margins. And because of this, we shouldn't have to try too hard to imagine some commonalities between this punk ethic and the gospel of Jesus. Though Christianity, at least in the affluent West, has all but lost its iconoclastic nature, when we read gospel accounts like Mark, when we read them carefully, we begin to see Christianity's fundamental orientation as a a movement of liberation and, yes, protest. One-third of the church today is called Protestant. It's embedded into its differentiation from other parts of the church, protestant. And we forget that. And yet in an American context, Christianity is seen not as an alternative vision, but really in league with the forces of the status quo, many of which are oppressive and harm those on the margins. And what I've hoped that this series does for us is that punk might open a window for us to see something that we might not see because we are embedded in the culture, because we have cultural blinders on. And I don't mean the culture out there. I mean that we inhabit a culture that may have been co-opted by these dominant forces. 
Now, Mark tells us that we have an enormous opportunity because one of the critiques about punk is that it's all protest and it doesn't have an alternative vision for reality. It doesn't have a future that is hoped for. And what Mark tells us is that Christianity is far more than simply a protest movement, but that Jesus came proclaiming an alternative reality that exists beyond what is seen, beyond what we can touch. And he came telling an alternative story that is going somewhere, that gives hope and meaning to our lives, to the ways that we make our way in our everyday world. Now, what does Mark say? The very first verse of his gospel, the kingdom of God has come near. He's referring to Jesus having come upon the scene. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. And we'll talk more about what that word repent means next week. Well, that's what Jesus says. What is, what is John Linden, or as he's known in the punk world, his stage name, Johnny Rotten, what does he have to say? Well, he says, I am an antichrist. Come on, sing along with me. You know the next line? I'm just kidding. I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. You know, it has to rhyme. The Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, was, came out in 1977 and are like another record that came out about the time Peter Frampton comes alive. It was sort of issued to you at birth. You just had to have that record, even if you weren't really interested in punk. If you lived in the suburbs, you had to experience the Sex Pistols. Now, I actually had a tape of a tape of Nevermind the Bollocks, uh, which I think was a tape of a tape of another tape. This was the early form of Napster. So it didn't, it didn't sound very good, but it didn't matter because it was the Sex Pistols, and they prided themselves on not being able to really play their instruments that well. I don't know if I really understood what they were getting on about, but I liked it because I was a teenager and it was very angsty. And I knew that most parents didn't like it. Most elders didn't like it. And so that was, that was all I needed to know. It didn't have to be all that good. I just wanted to listen to it. But I guess because I was raised in the Baptist church and knew a little bit of the Bible, I did remember thinking calling oneself an antichrist was maybe a little bit self-important. You know, that's, that's kind of a big thing, a big label to wear. But I didn't really find too much about their overall project that was specifically anti-Christian. They're protesting the stifling social hierarchies that are based on race and based on wealth, primarily in Britain at the time. They're protesting the grueling underemployment and unemployment among the working classes. They're protesting leaders who seem remote and unaccountable and corrupt at times. And they're protesting and, and disavowing themselves from this British empire that used military might to foist Western values upon poorer countries. Now, whether you agree with Johnny Rotten's cultural analysis or not, 
why do those things so naturally feel to him to be anti-Christian? I think if the sex pistols had been around 2,000 years ago and they had read Mark or they had been around Jesus, Johnny Rotten may not have thought of himself as an anti-Christ, but he may have seen Jesus, John the Baptist, Mark, as co-belligerents to this larger project of social, political, and yes, religious, spiritual reform. Now, you may not have seen it, so let's look at the text really briefly. I want you to see just a couple of things. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark is writing a few decades later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's saying that this is what happened. And because of, hang on, I didn't switch my page, sorry, going the wrong way here. Get it together. Our understanding, however, of this term, the beginning of the gospel, is so overly spiritualized and primarily has an individualist bent, we may not notice quickly how politically subversive this term is. Archaeology has dug up all of these instances of how gospel was used in the ancient world, and it was often used for the announcement of a new ruler or the announcement of the birth of a new king. There's one very famous one that says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Mark is co-opting this language, and he is taking something that was ascribed to the emperor and now ascribing it to this strange rabbi who lived and walked and died and was claimed to have been resurrected in the ancient Near East. A gospel simply tells of an event that changes everything for everyone. And they were the stories of the rise of political leaders. And so for Mark to write this down and to attach this term gospel to the story of a leader, a spiritual leader that Rome crucified. Now that's punk. And that's seditious. That's treasonous. And not only that, he's Yesu Christu. That is Jesus, Messiah. What is he doing here? He is putting Rome on notice that there is a new king in town. And he's also putting on notice, and we'll see in a moment, the religious authorities. But this movement in Jesus' name, by its very nature, is challenging the imperial colonial apparatus of Rome. It's undermining the rule and the ascendancy of Rome, but not in the way that they would think. Because refusing to be a Messiah with a sword is undermining the very basis of Roman rule. That is fear based upon the threat of violence. But there's something else going on. Not only the term gospel that is subversive and treasonous, but also there's another term. Get this, Mark's uh, Bible that he would be reading would have been the Septuagint, most likely. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in Genesis 1.1, you hear this, 
This is talking about creation out of nothing. And what does it say in the beginning? And the word for beginning is the Greek word arche. Well, guess what word Mark uses in verse 1, 1 of his gospel? The beginning, arche, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very same word. And friends, this stuff is not accidental. Mark is saying what is happening in Jesus is more than just a new teaching. It's more than just a new spirituality or even a new form of political reform. What is happening in Jesus is the recapitulation of history itself. Everything that God began in Genesis 1-1, everything that He started, He launched, He intended in the original creation is being renewed now in the person of Jesus. It is a new arche. And then there's one more thing, gospel, arche, and then temple. <clears throat> this is, as I said, a recapitulation, not a simple return to what was. It is not simply a renovation of the old. Jesus doesn't come simply to fix what is broken, but He brings a new creation that is springing up in the shell of the old. You see, in each major section of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there were history, then there was right wisdom, and there's prophets. And in each of these major sections, there's the theme of God's goodness and healing, taking root where? Taking root in the margins, taking root among <clears throat> the marginalized, among the poor, the trampled upon, the forgotten. God's healing will come to those in exile. And when you see, the Old Testament says over and over, when you see justice, when you see joy springing up, in these places and among these people, there is God's kingdom. There is God's healing presence. But the temptation was always to look for God's blessing where? In the powerful places. Think in the kingdom, in the kingship, in the shadow of a powerful king, David and Solomon. Or God's blessing was found in elaborate religious ritual and superstructure. Think about the Levitical priesthood, which was meant actually to guard people on the margins, to advocate for the widow and the orphan and the alien and the poor, but over the centuries becomes entrenched in its own perpetuation. Forms into a powerful religious class that guards the interest of the elite and becomes, by the time of Rome, sort of wards of the state. They've been so co opted. And Mark begins to tell us how deeply embedded Jesus' new creation is with the old and at the same time ushering in something unexpected and something new. Did you notice that Mark is quoting something here? That He's quoting the Old Testament. In verse 1, I will send my messenger ahead of you. The messenger will prepare your way. Well, that's from 
Malachi. The last book, at least as we determine it in the Christian Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, maybe 400 years old at this point. And the angst of Judaism at that point was that we have been overrun and oppressed by three successive foreign powers, and we are still in exile, and perhaps there's no hope. It's been 400 years. Maybe God has abandoned us once and for all because of our sin and because of our corruption. Maybe He stopped speaking for good. And what Mark does is he says, no. He brings the Old Testament into the story of Jesus, but he is recapitulating it. But get this. Are you listening? This is so good. The next part of Malachi is then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come where? Will come to His temple. God is renewing His healing presence. He hasn't forgotten them, but He's speaking from where? He doesn't, Mark doesn't quote that next part of Malachi, but instead he grafts in a portion from Isaiah 40. And it says that the seed of religious power has actually changed. The messenger will appear not in the temple, but where? In the wilderness. Furthermore, he's from, verse 1-9 of Mark, he's from Nazareth in Galilee. What is he saying here? This is Nowheresville. This is if God came to Manhattan and he said, I'm here from Alabama. And I can make fun of Alabama a little bit. I'm not just being a snooty coastal elite, but I'm from Alabama. And I cheered the tide on to another victory yesterday, so I can say whatever I want, you know. For Caesar, he is telling him and putting him on notice, and he's saying that Jesus is not from cosmopolitan origins. He doesn't come with a show of strength, but to the religious elite, he's saying, and this is the point that Mark is going out of his way to make to the religious establishment, is that Jesus is basically what they would think of as a country bumpkin, and that John the Baptist is a hick. And anyone that would come down to the river to be with them, it's like how Presbyterians think of like tent revivals and Pentecostals. You know, we're the educated ones. That this is the uneducated elite and they'll fall for anything. Mark is actually saying that, but he is taking what he knows to be the religious understanding of Jesus and turning it on its head. He's not from the rabbinical schools in, Ju- in Jerusalem. He's from where most Jews would have thought of with utter contempt, Galilee. And he's not the Lord of the temple, but he is the temple. And he moves the psychological center from Jerusalem, that is, everyone come to this powerful place where the religious establishment is, and he moves it to the margins. He moves it outside. He moves it to the wilderness. Now, let me wrap up. This is always where God says, expect His healing and His presence to come from 
the margins. And it's where Jesus was found throughout his life. This is where the sex pistols are from. They're from the cultural margins. They're not respectable music. They're not what the tastemakers would have you listen to. In fact, when their song, God Save the Queen, went to number one in Britain, the BBC whited out the number one single for that week just to thumb their nose at the Sex Pistols. There's no way this kind of music can be number one in our culture. What is going on? What is happening? What are the kids listening to these days? We're bound for cultural decline. And that's exactly, friends, what Rome would have done with the Gospel of Mark. They would have whited it out. And that's what today's political and cultural gatekeepers would do with it if they really understood what it's saying. Now, I shortened this sermon. Maybe you don't believe that right now. But I'm leaving out four very practical applications. We're going to do that next week. So let me just say this so that you'll have something more than just kind of 36,000 feet. How do we move from this? We start not simply, but we start, yes, by going to people on the margins because most of us in this room are just incredibly wealthy by the standards of the world. And we have to work hard to find people on the margins. But we don't have to work that hard because there are some people in these pews. There are some people right outside these doors. And we begin to understand God's care for those on the margins and God's care for those in exile by going there ourselves. But we also have to see us, have to see ourselves, even if we are not marginalized from the money and the wealth that exists in our country, we have to see ourselves as spiritual exiles that Jesus went into exile to rescue, that Jesus went to find, that he didn't go to the temple and set himself up there and say, please take a pilgrimage to me, but that he went as the temple into the margins, into the wilderness where you and I can be found. That's who Jesus is. That's the people that he comes for. Those who don't have the resources, those who are poor in spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we go through this week into the new week, that we would see those people who are on the margins, and maybe it wouldn't be the people that we would expect. Maybe it might be people that have money, that have cultural power, but are on the margins or in the wilderness spiritually, emotionally, physically. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see them and to give them dignity. And I pray that you would help us to do that by seeing our own place that we occupy on the spiritual margins that you came and rescued us from. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.